Well, welcome everyone. Our ongoing study of the book of Romans. So we're in chapter 11, as you know. If you have uh, the notes or have access to the notes, I, I'd encourage you to have page 23, which is a, a slide of something I'll be referring to. And Paul talks about the olive tree and the roots and all of that. We will be alluding to that. It, it, it's not really critical, but it's a little bit of a visual uh, picture, image of what Paul's trying to talk about. Now, we are in the concluding chapter of three, chapter 9, 10, 11, which deal with the issue of Israel. And as you know, uh, in chapter uh, 9 at the beginning, the Apostle Paul laments the fact that his people, the Jews, have not accepted their Savior and Messiah Jesus. And he talks in chapter 9 about the importance of God's electing grace, God's mercy. And in chapter, and it is, that is a part of uh, what is going on because of, of the rejection by the Jewish people of Jesus as Messiah opens up the gospel to the Gentiles. And then chapter 10, which we finished last week, Paul speaks, even though there is that rejection and even though there is God's electing grace, Israel is still culpable for that rejection. And Paul, even at the end of the chapter, maybe it was that they didn't hear it the message, and he shows they did. Maybe they didn't understand, he showed that they did. So he must ask this final question, which is really what chapter 11 is all about, which I, I think we may have just cracked into it last week. I ask, therefore, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 11, as God rejected his people. And that's, um, that is probably one of the most foundational questions of Scripture. Because, as you, I'm sure you're aware of this, but just go through the Old Testament real quickly. The Old Testament, chapter 12 of Genesis, through the end of, of the book, uh, the books of the Old Testament, Malachi, is the last book in the English Old Testament. Um, the fact that it's the Jews, the fact that it's Israel, the fact that the children of Israel, all of that's in center stage. And what frames that, and this I'm hoping is clear in your mind, what frames all of that is Abrahamic covenant. God's unconditional covenant with his people, the Jews. He chose them. Why did he choose them? He doesn't tell us. He chose them. And they would be the vehicle through which he would bring the Messiah to the people. In, in you, God is speaking to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed, the blessing of salvation. So it's a consequential question. If all that is true, which it is, and they have rejected Jesus, their Messiah, then has God rejected them? Now, that's a really important question. Um, maybe 100 years ago, it wasn't quite as important of a question to, to zero in on. But today, it's an amazing development, in my view, anyway. There is a, a rejuvenation, a rebirth of the idea of what is called replacement theology. And that is that the church has replaced Israel. That God is done with Israel. God is done with the Jews. They had their chance. They blew it. So he's done with them. So that, by the way, that... Replacement theology is is the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. That's their official position in their in their theology. But most Roman Catholics don't know that. It's never talked about. It's never taught, particularly or specifically by local priests in their in their parishes and so on. But it's a foundational question because it is very much. That's just what's just shocking to me. It's very much in resurgence among Protestants. Right. And if you follow some of the Catholic literature from um, 
Vatican II down. They, they keep dumbing it down, but they don't get rid of it. They don't get rid of it. Right. I mean, they don't talk about it, but it, they, 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 they haven't gotten rid of it. And that's why maybe some of you, maybe you don't watch this much, but if you ever watch PBS, you'll probably watch it. They had a, a two-couple-part series by Ken Burns on the Holocaust, and they had on the United States and all the response to that. They also had a segment on the church, Catholic church. And it's really an interesting program that preceded that, that Peggy and I watched, where they talked about Paul VI, who did not openly condemn the Nazis for what they were doing. His successor would. But it was really, it's a fascinating tale. I, I don't want to use this to dump on the Catholic Church. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But I'm trying to alert you to the fact that this idea, it's usually called replacement theology, but this idea that God has done with the Jews is not an old idea that nobody believes anymore. It's very much alive and well. So that question that the Apostle Paul is posing here in verse 1 is an extremely relevant question because the Jewish people rejected, for the most part, many did accept you, as you know, and still today accept you. But most Jews have rejected the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. If that's true, then has God rejected them? And another way to phrase the question, is God done with the Jewish people? Perhaps a more penetrating way to ask the question, has God nullified the Abrahamic covenant? How does Paul answer that question? By no means. Now, I think you've heard me say this before because he answers a number of his questions in Romans 9, 10, 11. That way, that is the strongest way you can say no in the Greek New Testament. That's the strongest way you can say no. And so he uses it. It's an emphatic no. All right. Now, what, what, how is he going to then show that? How is he going to demonstrate that? Now, there's a, there's a, we, we've come across that word once before. We're going to see it several times in this chapter. There's a very important word in this chapter, and that word is remnant. That God always has a remnant. And what he is going to say, I'm going to give you the summary right now. Because all Jews have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah does not mean God is done with the Jews. In fact, God has always had a remnant of Jewish people. And another way of putting it, the Abrahamic covenant does not promise that God will save every Jew. It's just that covenant is with the Jewish people. And there's that mixture of divine sovereignty. It, the promise isn't that mechanically God is going to save every Jewish person. But that doesn't mean that his covenant isn't still operative. So how does Paul, how will Paul go about showing this? Well, the very first thing he shows is Paul himself. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has, God, God has not, I don't know what that was, where that was coming from. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Let me stop for just a minute. Why would Paul bring himself to the witness stand to show that God isn't done with the Jewish people? Why would Paul bring himself as a testimony to the, to the proposition that God has always had a remnant of believers within the Jewish people? The Damascus Road. Because Paul, if there was any person in the first century, 
any person that would be an unlikely candidate for God's mercy and grace, it would be Paul. Because of what he did before the Damascus Road. I mean, he was the most ruthless, relentless persecutor of the church there was. And as he tells us in Acts 23, he did that with a good conscience. He believed he was doing God's work. So, so he uses himself as an example of God always has a remnant. There's always a remnant, and in the case, discussions on Jewish people, so that's the focus. He always has a remnant of Jewish people who follow him, who have been loyal to him. No matter what you think, no matter what you observe, no matter what you conclude. And he uses that, he uses himself as an example of that. No Jew would possibly ever think Paul would be a likely candidate for the grace and mercy of God. So Paul illustrates the remnant idea. We haven't seen that word yet, but we're going to see it in a minute. I'm interested in in something that Paul does say uh, that you may or may not find that curious. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3 as well. Why, why put as one of your, your credentials, why list on your um, resume that you're of the tribe of Benjamin? Because most of you, maybe, maybe that's not true, but most of you, if you start thinking about the tribe of Benjamin, I can't think of anything significant that comes out of the tribe of Benjamin. If Judah is the tribe, the line of Judah, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, David from the tribe of Judah, all of the all of the kings of Judea are all from the tribe of Judah. But Benjamin, and if you uh, we've never studied that in this class, but if you ever study the book of Joshua at the end of Joshua, uh, after the, the, the Canaanites have been conquered and they've settled in the land for the most part, Joshua then distributes all the land grants. And if you ever look at the, the map of those land grants, Benjamin is really small. It's a tiny little land grant, just immediately north of Judah, immediately south of Ephraim. They're land grants. So why does Paul focus on being of the tribe of Benjamin? Let me just focus on that a little bit. That was important because Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son after Joseph. Benjamin was the last born of Jacob's 12. Remember that? All those boys he has and so on. And then finally, to his wife, the wife he loved, Benjamin's born. Benjamin also, Benjamin also was one of the, the only one that remained loyal to Judah. In 931 BC, when Solomon died, and they, remember the 10 tribes of the north revolted and set up their own kingdom, the kingdom of Israel? Benjamin remained loyal to Judah. And so when we speak of Judea, it's Benjamin and Judah. And then the perhaps the other really important part of why he would be proud or affirming is Jerusalem is in the land grant of Benjamin. Jerusalem is not in the land grant of Judah. It's in the land grant of Benjamin. And so that that kind of focus that he is also the tribe of Benjamin for most of us may not seem like really important, but it was important. So he's saying, listen, of all the unlikely illustrations that God always has a remnant of Jewish people who do respond in faith to the covenantal promises and specifically the Messiah, I'm one of them. 
Then in verse 2, he interjects an important theological point. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now that's that's always a controversial word. It's in the great chain of salvation. That was the end of Romans 8. Remember, he foreknew, he predestined, he let them all those, and all the way in, I was glorified. So it's important. Foreknew, it's in Greek, it's prognosko. Foreknew is the covenant love of God. So when Paul uses the term foreknew, it's, we're translating prognosko, we're translating anything, but the, the Greek of that is that it's the loyal covenant love of God. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so the loyal covenant of God is echoing the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's just a reminder, God has not rejected his covenant. He's not rejected the elements of his covenant, and he's not rejected the object of his covenant, which is the Jewish people, the Abrahamic covenant. And so he's going to do another illustration of this. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? And he's going to be referring here to 1 Kings chapter 19 how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. Remember the context of this in chapter 19? Elijah has just done battle with the Baals on Mount Carmel. Ahab is king of northern kingdom. Jezebel is wife. Remember Jezebel, the most despicable woman in all the Bible. Unbelievers who never opened the Bible have heard of Jezebel. She was a horrible woman. She brought Baalism into And Elijah does battle with the Baals on Mount Carmel. And you remember, it's a tremendous victory. He destroys the altars. He kills all the prophets of Baal. And then what does he do? He runs. Remember that? He runs. He's absolutely exhausted physically and spiritually. And he runs all the way down to Mount Horeb eventually. And this is what he's, he's organizing a pity party. And invites God to the pity party. And he says, Lord, they killed your prophets. They demolished your altars. I don't let them left. They shake my life. Woe is me. And what did God say to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How does that fit into Paul's argument? Why does he bring that up as an illustration of his point that God has not rejected his covenant people, the Jews. There's always a remnant. There are always Jews who will accept the message of the Messiah, will accept and put their faith in the living God, the God of the covenant. Elijah, he thought he was alone. God reminds him of the facts. You're not alone. 7,000 of my people have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, that's That's a formidable number. What's his illustration? God always has a remnant. So here's the point, verse 5. Therefore, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. There's the word remnant. This is a major theological term of chapter 11. God always has a remnant of believers. In this context of what Paul is arguing, it's in the context, okay, Jewish people have rejected, most Jewish people have rejected Jesus from Messiah. Paul, Paul, God is reminding, and Paul is now communicating, 
That may be true. The Abrahamic covenant did not promise that every Jewish person would come to faith. But the facts are, God always has a remnant. And I, this is true because of some things in the other parts of the New Testament. Wherever people are on planet Earth, God always has a remnant. It may only be one person. It may only be one family. It may be on one little group, but God always has a remnant of believers. This isn't uh, a man that Verse seven. <laughs> uh, you know, I, Fred, I, I, at one level, I can't. I don't know if Pope Francis has ever read it. I, I don't know that. I mean, what, he, what, what in the world? How can they divest a promise where, on a book, they have not maybe embraced a person who makes that declaration? Can you do? understand how that is possible because it is in fact based on what you said true people make all kinds of conclusions i have built my bubble it says kind of going back to you about the christians a lot of christians believe that the promise of abraham had been transferred to the christians we are now the jewish it's one it's one of your notes i know which bible you have but but it's it's that is and what Bill is saying is correct. I, I wasn't going to get into all this, but now I'll get into it a little bit. And that this is exactly the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. Fred, when they, when they read something, I say yes, but. And this is this is the however convoluted this might seem. This is how they argue. When the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah in the first century. And Pentecost came in the beginning of the church, Holy Spirit comes and so on. The church replaces Israel. So in other words, the, the, the promises that God made to the Jewish people are now transferred to the church, and they're irrelevant. There will be some Jews that will come into the church, but all the stuff about the Abrahamic covenant uniquely focused on the Jewish people as his covenant people that's that's no longer operative. And I mean that. Never mind. Yeah, that, and that's that's the uh, that's the heart of uh, our millennialism. And again, I mean, I didn't want to get into all this unless you really want me to. But that's the heart of several of these systems of theology, and even how they then frame end times discussion and 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 teaching. Um, Fred, it, and this is again, you know, we could spend a couple hours on this. You will search in vain in the New Testament to find any place in the New Testament where it says the church is the new Israel. You will search in vain to find anywhere in the New Testament clear propositional truth teaching that the church replaces Israel. You, you are not going to find that teaching. And this chapter, and in a way, that's your point. This chapter makes it very, very difficult to not see and conclude that the Israel and the church do not merge. Israel and the church are two distinctive, let's use the word groups, two distinctive groups in God's redemptive program. And so, therefore, it leads to that question, if that's true, 
then when will God fulfill his covenant promises to the Jewish people? And the Old Testament answers that in Ezekiel and Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, when, when the Lord Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, he will then fulfill all those covenantal promises. And in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, in great detail, it lays out how God's going to do this. It's even going to involve all the Jewish tribes once again receiving their land grants and ruling with Jesus in their land grants during the coming kingdom. That's in Ezekiel 40 through 48. But everything you just said is so hard. It is much easier to infer that when the testimony or the new church was developed, that yep. this was transferred to the new church. Yep. Yep. A lot easier to think. Yeah, well, it makes it, it, makes it so simple. It makes it simple. But that's. But you, you, you honestly, if you're intellectually honest and you study Scripture, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament covenant promise, it's really hard to reach that conclusion. I make my own perspective because I very, very, very strong convictions in this area. I would argue it's impossible to find that that there are two distinct peoples of God in institution of the church, and there's just, they are not the same. Now, Jews can, I mean, you know, before Christ comes back, Jews can come into the church and experience all the blessings of being in the church, but they're still Jews. And, you know, it, it, this is a very anecdotal piece of evidence. It really is. But nonetheless, it's something to at least consider. The miracle of the survival of the Jewish people uh, over 3,000 years of history is absolutely astonishing. And people who don't give a hoot about anything in the Bible are still astonished. That the unique identity of the Jewish people has been maintained because almost all other groups have merged and acculturated and give up their identity and uniqueness. You know, like in, in America, for example, you have, you have Italians, but they're Italian-American. All of the distinctive, unique things about coming from Italy, they're still there culturally, but they're now Americans. You know what I mean? And and I'm working with a I work with a Chinese church here in town. They're, they're Mandarin Chinese, and they're trying to do what immigrants do. They're trying to maintain their identity, and they want their youth to know their identity. And so they have two services: an English service and a Mandarin service. And so they're trying to preserve all this. But you know you know what's happening, don't you? The young kids coming up. They're, they, they're in American schools, American universities. You know they know English. Some don't even know Mandarin. And so what are they? I'm an American, and I, I don't really want to worship in Mandarin Chinese. I I don't want I I don't. And so it's that kind of thing. So, but the Jewish people have maintained that identity. It's remarkable. And when the state of Israel was reestablished, they did something that no one has ever done in history. They took a dead language and rejuvenated it. Hebrew was a dead language. You could read it, but nobody was speaking Hebrew. But Rabbi Ben Judah in the early 20th century started to, to rejuvenate a dead language. And he began to teach it. Now, what's the language of the people? If you, ever go to Israel, if you ever go to Israel, what will you see? People are speaking Hebrew. All the traffic signs are in Hebrew. Everything's in Hebrew. It's an, it's an, it's an amazing development. You know, I mean, really, it's an absolutely astonishing development. And the Jews keep coming into yeah. Israel. Yeah, 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 right. With the stuff Putin's doing, stuff Putin's doing in Ukraine, 13,000 Jews a month are fleeing from Ukraine headed down to Israel. God said, I will bring my people back to land. I'm just saying all that because 
and we're getting beyond this, so I'm going to get back to the Bible now. But it's all about this issue that's so important. All right? Is everybody with me? Jim, did you have a question? No. I just hate these interruptions. Oh, okay. Well, now we're back to the Bible. These are not interruptions. These are understanding the scriptures. All right. He says in verse 7, verse 5, so to the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's the key word. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, those, that last sentence is not a new sentence. He's been saying that all through the book. So he's just repeating something. As with all things God does, it's based on his grace and his mercy. All right, now he's going to continue his argument. What then, or you could say, what therefore? Israel failed to obtain what was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so, okay, now he's coming back to a degree to a theme he had developed in chapter 9. All right. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What does that mean? Jews in the first century were seeking the Messiah. They failed to believe in the Messiah. The elect Jews obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, that's not a new idea. That's chapter 9, and Paul is applying it to the Jewish people. Some accepted the mercy and grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Those who rejected it, their hearts were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. He's quoting from Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4. And then he quotes from David in Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's a messianic psalm. David is predicting, prophesying, declaring what will happen to those who reject Jesus. And, and well, to reject the Messiah. That's a messianic song. So what is what is Paul doing? As, as individuals rejected Jesus as a Messiah, they were seeking him, but they rejected it. Others accepted it, the elect. What happened to those who rejected? Their hearts were hardened. Now, that hardening process, and, and that's really hard for you and me, but we talked about that at length in chapter nine. The hardening by God. Of, of individual people is after they have rejected his grace over and over again. He removes his mercy. He removes his grace. Hardening is the result. Now, that, we've talked about that before, so that's not something new. He's just saying the same thing that he's talked about before. But he wants to show something. How is this hardening of the hearts of Israel a blessing to the Gentiles? Why should you and me, and I think we're all Gentiles in this room, why should you and why should we be thankful that this hardening occurred? And here's where he's going to develop the idea of the olive tree. Because he's going to say, because of the hardening of many of the Jewish people, Gentiles were grafted into, you know what grafted in, you know what that means, I'll wait, I'll wait, I mean, were grafted in to the tree of blessing. The roots of the Abrahamic covenant, the roots of the patriarchs, that's the foundation to mix the metaphor. 
the roots, the foundation, two different metaphors. Are the patriarchs, the Abrahamic covenant promises. And the tree that grows from these roots is the Jewish tree, the tree that reflects the Abrahamic covenant, the tree, the tree that reflects all the covenantal promises of God. But many, many Jews rejected it. So their branches are cut off, <laughs> so to speak. And God grafts in Gentiles. But that, so that's that's kind of an important. The blessings of salvation have been available, have been made available to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected Jesus as a Messiah. And that's where he's going. So this is Paul now in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is this stumbling, this rejection, this this setting aside of Jesus, is it irrevocable? By no means. So that's he's an, that's another way of asking the question. Is, is their rejection of Jesus mean that no Jews will ever accept Christ as their Savior? That no Jews will ever be saved now? He's already talked about the remnant, but he comes circles back to that question. But by no means. Rather, through the trespass, through their trespass, trespass is a Greek word, is one of the many Greek words for sin. Trespass is, here's the mark, here's what you show, you miss it. So here's the mark, Jesus is the Messiah. They missed it at trespass. Because of their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's what Paul, what did Paul call himself? I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Why is he an apostle to the Gentiles? Because of Pentecost, because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and in the, in the argument Paul is making here, if the Jewish people had accepted Jesus as Messiah, and Messiah would have set up his kingdom and ruled for a thousand years, then the kingdom would have been fundamentally a Jewish kingdom, and the Gentiles would have been abandoned. Now, that was not God's plan. Because salvation in the gospel is for everybody, but what Paul is arguing is you have to understand, you Jews and you Gentiles who live in Rome, he's writing the book, that you Gentiles should be very thankful for the hardening of Israel because as they trespassed, they missed the mark. Here's Jesus, he is the Messiah, that's the mark. You missed it, you trespassed, you missed it. Salvation has come to us. And then he adds something. It's an intended result from God's perspective. So as to make Israel jealous. That's a fascinating comment. If I understand it correctly, is that Jews will see the blessings of God being poured out on the Gentiles, and we're not getting this lesson. Why? And it's the argument he's going to make as it makes them jealous. They're going to find they're going to start in, in, being inquisitive and trying to find out. Well, then, is Jesus really the Messiah? So it's just. But this isn't. We're not talking about a day or two. We're talking about a whole age. We're talking about the hundreds and it's now two thousand years since all of this started. You know, it's just what God's doing. And we'll get into some of that in just a minute. Now, if the trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
when he uses the pronoun there, who's he, who's he referring to? Israel. All right, if, if all of this that is just so clear, this has been part of God's plan, if all of this is true, that the trespass of Israel resulted in the opening of the salvation availability to the Gentiles, and the, the world is blessed because of that, how much greater will be the blessing when the Jews come back into salvation with God through Jesus Christ, and they recognize him as their Messiah. Is Paul thereby closing the door on Israel? Verse 12 is, no. He's inferring rather clearly that part of God's plan is the Jewish people will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. All right, now, it's time for me to take a sip of coffee, but it's also an opportunity for you to ask any questions. Any guys online have a question? Everybody with me? All good. All right. I'm going to assume that you're like Peter. You're speaking for the whole group. Okay. So here. Unless you want to dive into amillennialism. I, I do not want to dive into amillennialism. I shouldn't have brought it up in answering to one of those bunny trails. But that, that's for another that's for another discussion. All right, now, now he in verse 13, and in, in what Paul is doing in this chapter, he wants to develop this point of the Gentiles experiencing spiritual blessings because of the hardening of Israel. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I, this is Paul speaking, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now that, that to me, this is really an important insight because you know, as you've studied the book of Acts, the missionary journeys of Paul, the first one starts in Acts 13, the last one ends in Acts 19. And you, you read those and you, you look through the three details of the three missionary journeys. Every time Paul goes into a city, where's the first place he goes? To a synagogue. And, you know, in almost all of the towns, if you read about all of the missionary journeys, in almost all the towns, some, some of the Jews accepted the gospel message, but most don't. They drive him out, and then what does he do? Then I went to the Gentiles. And so he's, he's saying, from my vantage point, representing the Lord Jesus as his apostle, and being an apostle to the Gentiles, the strategy is, as I go to the Gentiles, and they receive the message of salvation, and they receive the new covenant blessings of God, the end result will be to make the Jews jealous. That sounds rather nefarious. That sounds rather manipulative. Paul's making a theological comment here. The strategy is to continue to bring the Jewish people under conviction as they see God at work among the Gentiles. And so he goes on, verse 15, now he's going to further explain his point. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? but life from the dead. Now, let's 
take that apart a little bit. If their rejection of Jesus' Messiah and the consequent hardening means reconciliation of the world, reconciliation where God is now reconciling, bring the world that's in rebellion back to him, because now all the Gentiles are hearing the gospel message. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, don't miss what he's saying there. The acceptance of the Jewish people of Jesus as a Messiah is a mark of the end of history. That's what the prophets tell us. Because life from the dead is the final resurrection, isn't it? You're supposed to say yes to that. Life from the dead is the final resurrection. By all means. Thank you, Woody. So when he says that, what he's talking about is, this is really because this is where he's going to go as he ends this chapter. The Jewish people are going to come to Christ and, and, and recognize him as the Messiah. But when they do that, and as they do that, that is the mark of the end of history. And that's what the book of Revelation talks about. This is one of those final dimensions of history is coming to an end. And that's exactly what Ezekiel talks about in, in, in uh, 36 and 37 and in 40 through 48. That's what Jeremiah talks about in 31. That's what Isaiah is talking about in about eight different chapters. Now keep your eye on what's happening in the Middle East. Keep your eye on what is happening as God is fulfilling this covenant promises to the Jews. Because as they are coming back to their land, and they are renewing their commitment to God in the land, there's coming a day when they are all going to accept Christ as their believer, as the Messiah. Je Zechariah puts it this way in chapter 12. They will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will believe. So what Paul, Paul is in, in just three little, three little phrases... He's summarizing what all the prophets in the Old Testament had said, and what the, the, when he wrote this, the book of Revelation hasn't been written yet, but what the book of Revelation will say. What's happening to the Jewish people is a marker for the end of history. God is going to finish and complete his redemptive plan, and the crowning aspect of his redemptive plan is the resurrection. And we will be caught up to be with Jesus, and we'll receive our, body, our resurrected bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. In the twinkling of an eye, to shout at the last trumpet, we will receive our resurrection. So Paul is saying, and this is what's so exciting about this, and in fact, he's saying, keep your eye on what God is doing with the Jewish people. Because as you see those covenantal promises fulfilled, and they embrace Jesus as much, because that's what he's saying, their acceptance, their acceptance of what? Their acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. Life of the dead. The resurrection is almost here. Which means the end of history is almost here. Which means God's about to bring everything, going to tie up all the loose ends, bring everything to inclusion, and restore planet Earth to its productivity, its abundance, and then usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I know when you'll get excited in this class about biblical truth, but this is one of those exciting propositions. And this is what Paul's right. God is not done with the Jewish people. He is not done with his covenant promises. Keep your eye on what God is doing. And when you see this occurring, it means the end is near. And then he uses metaphorical language. 
if the dough offered as fruits for fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so it's branches. So he uses two different metaphors here, two different figures of speech. If the dough is offered as first fruits, the whole lump is. And if the root is holy, which it is, he's transitioning to talk about the olive tree. If the root is holy, which it is, and so are the branches. And so he's just saying, keep your eye on what God is doing to the, with the Jewish people. Keep your eye on that. Because as they accept Jesus, the end is near. Basically, the, the, the dough, the leaven of the Pharisee versus. Exactly, exactly. All right, now, what he's going to do, uh, 12.30, I don't know if we're going to get all this done, but we're going to get very close. Now, it's natural that he does this. He talked about the root and the branches. Now he wants to talk about the olive branch, the olive tree, the roots. And all he's going to do is he's going to use that figure of speech of an olive tree. And again, there's an image of this on your page 23 in the notes back up there. That the, the, the roots, the roots of the olive tree are the patriarchs, the, Abra the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And the branches are all the Jews that come from that. In other words, all ethnic Jews. So this is what he says. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root, what's the nourishing root? The Abrahamic covenant and the patriarchs and all of the blessings that go with it of the olive tree do not be arrogant toward the branches. What branches? The ones that were cut off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. One, one individual back in the 1970s wrote a book entitled Christianity is Jewish, which is an intriguing title. What did she mean by that? That Christianity comes out of Judaism. Christianity is Jewish because Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jew. God's, Jesus said to the woman at the Samaritan well in John chapter 4, you have to understand that salvation comes from the Jews, which is the key element of the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12, verse 3, and you all the nations will be blessed. So all that. So he, he's saying the same thing. The root, and this is the right way to think about it. The roots of Christianity are in Judaism. The roots are there. That's where it started. If you remember, it is not to support you, but to support you. Then you will say, branches were broken off, so I may be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. You stand face fast through faith. So they did not become proud, but fear. Now, look, you know this, but fear is a worship word. So all he's saying is the antidote to pride is worship, is fear. You Gentiles, don't boast of what's happened to you. Worship. For if God did not spare the natural boundary, branches, neither will he spare you. Now then the kindness and the severity of God. Note then the kindness and severity of God, verse 22. 
severity to those who have fallen, God's kindness to you, provide you continue in his kindness. That's called a perseverance. So you just you see something here that is a factual truth, as harsh as it might seem, severity toward those who have fallen. God has severely disciplined the Jewish people, but he's shown kindness to the Gentiles in this context. And even they, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Is God done with the Jewish people? No, he has the power to graft them back in. Will he graft them back in? Look at verse 26. I'm jumping ahead because of time. All Israel will be saved. We'll get to that in a minute. For if you were cut off from what is nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Is God done with the Jewish people? No. And to follow the metaphor that Paul's developing in this paragraph, they're going to be grafted back into the olive tree of blessing. So that begs the question, when will that happen? Because you and I mean, this is 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, and we're still in 2020, and we're saying, well, a lot of Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ. I've known a number over, over my life, but still, I mean, for the most part, you look at the 8 million Jews that live in the nation state of Israel today, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are secular. The Orthodox Jews live in Jerusalem, but you go to Tel Aviv or Haifa, you think you're in the United States, you think you're in Chicago or New York City. There's absolutely no evidence of belief in God, let alone belief in Jesus. But they're there. And the thing God said he would start doing in Ezekiel 36 and 37, start bringing his covenant people back to the land. That's happening. You and I are seeing that. So the spiritual change, the spiritual reconciliation, we haven't seen. That's what Paul was thought. When is this going to happen? The last main point of this chapter. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Now, the Greek, this is always a challenge when this happens. The word mystery in English is simply a transliteration from the Greek word. They're just bringing the Greek word into English letter for letter. And the problem with that, that doesn't help us to understand what that means. Because when we hear the word mystery in 2022, you think of Perry Mason or Columbo or Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes or something like that. That's what you think of. That has nothing to do with this. The Greek word mysterion means God is revealing something that was once hidden. Something that is not completely clear in the Old Testament is now clear. And God's revealing it. And so Paul is saying, I want you to understand something that is not very clear in the Old Testament. I want you to understand something that God is now making crystal clear. And it's got three parts to it. Part number one, there will be a partial hardening of the Jewish people. Part number two, until the fullness 
of the Gentiles has come in. All right, fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? When all of the non-Jewish people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, going to recognize who he is and accept him in faith, then all of this will be saved. I want to talk about all this in a minute. I want to talk about what that means. But there's this three-step part of the mystery. Part one, there will be hardening, a partial hardening of the Jewish people. Part two, there will be the, the gospel being taken to the Gentile people all over the world. And when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, Julie Arendt, who has a global friends ministry in town, she puts it this way. When the last Gentile is saved, and her ministry says, I want to be the person who brings that last Gentile faith. That's her global friends ministry. I, if, you, if you don't know Julie, you don't want to talk about it. She's that kind of person. She really believes that. She's an incredible woman. Your ministry is a fantastic ministry. So all Paul's just saying, this, this is God's plan. This is a mystery. You can't really see this in the Old Testament. It's not very clear. But now I'm making it clear. The hardening of Israel is partial. But it has a time limit to it until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The last Gentile that's going to come to Christ, then all of us will be saved. Now, what he does, um, I'm going to try to do this in five minutes. So what Paul does, he quotes from the Old Testament, and he quotes from Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, and Jeremiah 31. He combines all three, which is something he does a couple of times. Isaiah 59, verse 20, Isaiah 27, verse 9, and Jeremiah 31, verse 33, combines them all. This is what he says. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. <clears throat> okay, you read. It's a combination of three Old Testament passages. You read that. We have to start with this, okay? The deliverer will come from. Who's the deliverer? Jesus. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's Jeremiah 31, 30. That's the new covenant. Okay. When is the deliverer going to come from Zion? He already came in his first advent. He already came and they didn't accept him. So when is the deliverer going to come back from to Zion? In his second coming. So what Paul is referring to in these various quotations that he's knitting together is the deliverer Jesus in his second coming. And that's what he's telling us. All of us will be saved when, when Jesus comes back. Again, in the words of Zechariah chapter 12, I believe it's 13, they will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. Zechariah is one of those fantastic minor prophets that gives us a lot of these details. And so what Paul is, he's tying all the loose ends up. And he's saying, listen, God's mysterious plan in terms of what I've been arguing in chapter 11 is this. There will be a hardened, partial hardening of the Jewish people. 
and that will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then Israel will be saved. Okay, when's the then Israel will be saved? Quoting from three Old Testament passages, especially using the New Covenants, when Jesus Christ comes back again. So all this will be saved. That doesn't mean every single Jew who's ever lived. That's counter to the argument he's been making. That even though there's rejection, God always has a remnant. There is every living Jew at the time Jesus comes back will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. The national regeneration of the Jewish people. 12.10, thank you. Zechariah 12.10, not 12.13. Fred's a good Berean. He checks everything I say. He goes, looks at that. Ekman's wrong. It's not 13. It's 10. But anyway, thank you, Fred. So now listen, I've thrown a lot at you in this hour. Are you with me? Do you understand what Paul's been doing here? He's conclusively showing something to us. Has God rejected his people? No. And the, you, listen, men, you cannot make Israel in verse uh, in, in these verses that culminate in verse 20, you can't make Israel the church there. You, you can't make the church there. That's not, it's just ethnic, national Israel. These are Jewish people. That's been the whole subject of this. God's covenant promises will be kept and will be maintained. And when you read, uh, I'm jumping to, back to Ezekiel, when you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, what you see there in this marvelous description of what the millennial kingdom is going to look like, you see Jew and Gentile worshiping Jesus. You see Jew and Gentile worshiping, but separate. It's really interesting because the Gentiles will continue to remember even during the millennial kingdom through the Lord's table as they celebrate it. The Jewish people will reinstitute three special sacrifices. Not Yom Kippur, but sacrifices of remembrance of who Jesus is. You follow what I'm saying? You're not losing me, are you? I'm not losing you. That's one of the marvelous things about Ezekiel 43-48. In the coming kingdom of Christ, the, the Israel, which will be national regeneration of the nation, according to what Paul just told us, and then the church, those two are going to be the two entities in the kingdom ruling and reigning with Jesus, and the Jewish people will have a, an aspect of worship that in the reinstituting three of the sacrificial system, only three, and they're celebrating what has been accomplished by Jesus. They don't re-sacrifice. It's celebration. It's a peace offering because everything's at peace with God. That's, it's just a marvelous understanding that God is going to bring everything to its completion, including the national regeneration of his people. It's just, it's, it, God has such a wonderful plan. And in his sovereignty, he even, this is what Paul is arguing here for us. He's even showing that the hard, partial hardening of the Jewish people was for a purpose and for his glory. And you and I, Gentiles, should rejoice in that. But don't conclude that God's not going to keep his covenant promises. He is. Hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles, then us will be saved. We did it. I didn't think I could get through this today because I knew you had a propensity to ask questions. We're not done with chapter 11, but we really got a, the meat of the chapter done. You follow what Paul's arguing here. Seriously, if you have questions, please ask them.
because your thought paper that's due next week will demonstrate whether you really grasp this or not, which is always a futile, empty, vain thing for me to say because I never mean it. You guys online okay? Everybody's with me? We're with next you. Week. Yep. Yep. All right. Good. Next week, we'll complete this. Uh, I mean, this, these last couple of verses of chapter 11. Oh, my goodness. They're just marvelous verses. But we'll finish all that then, and we'll just get started. We'll start to crack into the practical application of the Book of Romans, which is chapter 12 through 16. It's kind of like, so what? If all this is true, so what? How should this affect how I live? What verse do you want to start with? I will start with verse 20. Uh, what is that? 28. Yeah. All right, I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for um, this fantastic passage of scripture we studied together. It helps us to clarify a very important question. Uh, does this mean the fact that Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah, does that mean God's rejected them? Is his Abrahamic covenant or promises, which are unconditionally unilateral, no longer functioning? Well, Paul has shown us, I think, very clearly, no, God is not done. As a matter of fact, all wrapped around the return of Jesus is another important, unbelievable development. Israel will be saved. He's referring, I think, to Zechariah 12, 10. That they will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. There's coming a day when the Jewish people who are alive at that point when Christ comes back, they will look at Jesus and they will understand, will believe, and will commit themselves to him as the Christ, their Messiah. What a fantastic promise. You keep your word, Lord. You keep your promises. They weren't empty. They weren't futile. They weren't vain. They were promises that you made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And you're going to keep those promises. And that's important for us. If, if God made promises to us, how do we know God's going to keep those promises? Well, those promises to Abraham are a good place to start. You keep your word. So, Lord, dismiss us now with your blessing as we go into our separate, uh, go our separate ways into our lives and all of our responsibilities. Help us to represent you well, for we represent a God who loves us and who keeps his word. And that is a fantastic message. So we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.